0: Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Was the UN COP26 climate summit a feel good talking event or will we see meaningful policy change? I'm Robert Colangelo and this is Green Sense where we examine environmental issues and their impact on a sustainable world. Michael Bernbaum is the climate solutions reporter for the Washington Post and was at the summit in Glasgow Michael, thanks for joining us on Green Sense.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Robert.
0: Well, world leaders have met 26 times since the 1990s to hash out these complex climate agreements. How many summits have you attended?
1: Um, well, this was actually my first COP, which is the uh, fancy way the Conference of Parties, uh, the, these these UN summits. Um, I uh, I've covered lots of summits of world leaders before, but. I've never seen such a gathering of, of climate leaders all in one place.
0: Well, everybody's got to start somewhere, so it'll be great to get your fresh observations. Uh, this one seemed to get a lot of attention, and I quoted at the beginning young Greta Thunbergs, uh, who thinks this was all blah, blah, blah talk. Uh, can you t- Since you hadn't been to one, I'm not sure how you could compare these, but uh, do you think all the talk there is going to bring about any real climate action?
1: Well, I think that it will bring about some climate action. Will it bring about the kind of climate action to the extent that uh, people like Greta Thunberg and other people, other young activists um, want? Probably not. It is not going to uh, fix the problems or or even um, really in a, in, a, in a gigantic way address the levels of global warming that we're forecast to have over the coming decades. Um, Right now, we're still, you know, essentially projected to have catastrophic uh, levels of global warming, even by just 2050. And um, nevertheless, what participants, negotiators, a lot of people inside these meetings would say is that the work they're doing is, um, it is making a difference, it's improving things, it is in gradual steps But this was an important step, and they're going to keep making um, more efforts in the coming years. And so the the, um, trajectory is in the right direction.
0: Let's dig into some of the issues. Uh, Developing countries have been saying they're suffering the most from a problem that wealthier countries are mostly creating. Was anything at the summit devised that might address these uh, poorer countries? And do we have any concrete actions that came from that?
1: Well, yes. And... um, I think the story of this summit and the story of many of these summits is that there are things that happen and everybody that the sign of a good compromise i heard multiple negotiators tell me this sign of a good compromise at the end is that everybody's unhappy and i think that's about accurate after two weeks of talks in glasgow um so developing countries um Uh, all of whom say, look, you know, we are facing the worst uh, effects of of, uh, global warming already, and this is not a problem that we caused. Uh, You, the United States, you, Europe, um, you, the wealthy world, you got wealthy because of the industrialization that was intimately connected. It's one and the same, it's all part of the same package. You caused this global warming, you're rich because of it, and the just thing to do is, is to help us out. They made some plans. Um, They agreed to uh, increase funding for vulnerable countries and developing countries like that, Um, but it was in a a very vague way. They said they were going to double funding from relatively low levels. Um, There aren't any um, uh, uh, sort of benchmarks or real commitments that that were made, but essentially the, the, the rich world said yes, developing world. We'll give you money. We won't say quite how much. um, But again, we'll keep talking about it. And maybe next year, we'll come back with something a little more concrete.
0: So money doesn't solve problems. And a lot of times it creates more. There's a lot of waste, graft, corruption, when you give large amounts of monies. Uh, How is money going to solve the problem for these disadvantaged countries?
1: Well, um, you are absolutely correct that part of the reason... Uh, Not all of the reason, but part of the reason that some of the wealthier countries, including the United States, are reluctant to write a blank check is that they are concerned about where is the money going to go? Who's going to control it? um, Will it, part of it, disappear through corruption or or, or other ends? Um, At the same time, there are very concrete needs uh, that are very expensive in, in, in lots of countries. I was talking last week to the finance minister of Tuvalu, which is um, a series of islands and atolls in the uh, South Pacific. And they are, they, they are low-lying atolls. They, they, they don't extend very high above sea level. And so they are extremely threatened by uh, rising seas. In fact, they are talking about how to figure out how to continue as a nation legally if they have no more land. So that, mm-hmm. that's the degree to which they're worried. What, what the finance minister was telling me is that um, they could use the money to uh, do land reclamation projects to sort of dredge up um, uh, uh, sand and, and other things uh, around their islands and rebuild their beaches, try to sort of forestall mm-hmm. some of the Um, some of these uh, erosion issues that they're facing, he said it would cost about 200 or $300 million. Uh, So a project sort of in that range. you know, Every country that I talk to has projects that they can rattle off like that. And I think a lot of these are legitimate, but it is, when you add it all up, incredibly expensive. And um, the rich world is, is absolutely not ready to commit the amount of money that uh, the developing world would like to see.
0: Well, to an earlier point you made, uh, the negotiations have been far from easy, according to COP26 President Alec Sharma. Why were they difficult, uh, and and how did they overcome these difficulties? Well, so you
1: put almost 200 countries in a room with each other, and each country, ultimately, the the agreements are done by consensus. So every single country has a veto from, you know, the smallest from Tuvalu all all the way up to Russia or China or the United States. Um, It is very difficult to come up with compromises and you have um, all sorts of tugs in in, in different directions, Um, you know, uh, from countries like Saudi Arabia or um, Russia, you know, these are countries whose economies are entirely dependent on pumping fossil fuels out of the ground and selling them. So they are resistant even to the basic idea of um, reducing the use of fossil fuels and acknowledging that oil and gas and, and, and burning those things are, are leading to global warming. So you have those people on one side, you have wealthy nations on the other side who are being asked for money. Um, you have the um, least developed countries who are incredibly vulnerable and um, uh, boast to global warming. They don't have the resources to do anything. So among all of these sort of competing interest groups, of which there are many, you have to forge some sort of compromise that everybody can more or less live with. Um, it was very difficult. In the end, everybody was unhappy, particularly it it, it ended up on, sun, on Saturday. Um, at the last minute, uh, some of the uh, coal producing countries, uh, India and China particularly, uh, said, okay, we have this deal, but unless you agree to these last minute changes uh, to sort of water down uh, language about phasing out the use of coal, we're not going to agree to this agreement at all. And um, the rest of the country sort of felt as though they were being taken hostage. There were tears, there was incredible unhappiness. That's part of what Alex Sharma was, was saying. He was not happy about it. He was on the verge of tears himself um, as he announced the deal. Um, but in the end, they did come to an agreement Generally, they agree uh, both that there's a lot more work to be done, but also that they've made some progress.
0: Well, let's talk about the overall feel of the event. Uh, you know, when when I think of 200 world leaders, I don't think of uh, bowls of popcorn and uh, 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 not, non-extravagant uh, events. What was it like there? Were people happy? Was it festive? Was it a party? Or were people down because we have a serious issue to solve? and they they're having real challenges coming to agreement. Well, it was
1: a lot of things. It was sort of I mean part of it was like a rock festival for climate geeks. So there was the there were the core negotiators about 10,000 in total, people representing governments. There were another 30,000 or so uh, people from civil society, people interested in climate groups, uh, protesters, uh, young people, you know, youth activists who, who were also accredited to come inside. Um, uh, countries had their own pavilions. Uh, Tuvalu had a, a, a display in which uh, there were um, polar bears who looked as though they were about to die on, on a little melting glacier. They looked very unhappy. Um, so you have this sort of festival atmosphere, Um, You have the actual substance of the negotiations. You have incredibly desperate protesters, both inside and outside. There were tremendous big marches led partly by Greta Thunberg, the the Swedish teenager whom you mentioned earlier. Um, All of that coming together on Glasgow, which is a very pretty um, Scottish industrial city, uh, not really built for mass uh, events, like 40,000 people descending on it. Um, It was... Very strange and very fun. Everybody's eating the same uh, really lousy conference food, soggy mayonnaise sandwiches, um, uh, and they're all sort of stuck in this big conference center. Um, So I think there were a lot of people who were very glad to be able to go home after two weeks.
0: Oh, very interesting. Well, thanks for giving it some color because you don't hear that part uh, of of the event. as we were talking about Greta Thunberg, uh, uh, she called COP26 top a PR event and a failure. Do you think she's being too hard on it? Or whenever you get that many uh, leaders in a room, you're never going to push the ball very far. And maybe they are making good progress.
1: So... Um... Uh, you know, there were definitely Dunberg uh, and a lot of the youth activists were really unhappy. Um, they said, "You know, this is greenwashing." Is, is a term that they like to use that um, countries are saying they're doing something to address climate issues, but really, what they're doing is not nearly enough to to make a difference. Um, it is not enough to make. It is not enough to solve the problem. So um, I I think there are different differences in approaches. Um, There were actually a number of sort of youthful negotiators, people representing countries um, who were in their twenties, who could easily have been the activists outside banging down on the gates. But instead, we're inside uh, the Panamanian delegation, for example, was uh, the average age was something like 26. It has in their mid 20s. Uh, the lead negotiator was 29. Those people were straddling both worlds, understood absolutely the emotions of the people who were outside um, and protesting. I think they felt as though it is nevertheless a useful process to have a voice, to be able to pull. Um, even in a small step, uh, the, the, the world forward on, on addressing climate change. I think they, they want to see more. But nevertheless, you know, essentially, this really is a complicated, uh, you know, multidimensional negotiation. And, and there is some progress that's being advanced. Uh, you know, the, the, there were enough pledges that sort of brought down the, the future level of global warming by a bit. And so not enough, but, but a bit.
0: You sort of alluded to this. Uh, what about the conspicuous absence of major polluting countries like China and President Xi? Uh, how, how did that set a tone for the event?
1: So there was disappointment at the outset. Um, The first two days, this is a two-week negotiation, the first two days are when world leaders, you know, when presidents, prime ministers uh, descend on Glasgow, they give speeches, they have some initial negotiations, they set the tone and the ambition, then they fly off and they let the sort of lower level bureaucrats actually do all the complicated work. And... Um, neither President Xi Jinping of China nor Russian President Vladimir Putin came. Those are two key um, fossil fuel nations, polluting nations, and um, that was a disappointment. There had been hope that they would come and they would make some um, more ambitious uh, announcements, soak up the adulation, uh, you know, use use it as a, as a good PR event. That didn't happen. Um, they were, I mean, Russia and, and uh, China were very much present in the negotiations, particularly China. They're a key country. Um, so they were there, uh, but uh, they did not make the level of ambitious pledges or commitments that a lot of um, climate folks would, would have liked to see.
0: Well, in closing, let's try to end it on a high note. Uh, did any agreements get reached that surprised you or was there anything noteworthy that you didn't expect to happen that was a positive?
1: Well, um, the 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 final agreement acknowledged the role of fossil fuels and the need to reduce their use, to phase them down uh, over time, to phase down coal, um, to address global warming. And on the one hand, that seems pretty obvious. You know, if you're on a, on a diet you need to acknowledge the role of um, fatty foods and sugars in in your weight problem, likely. Um, You'd think that would be kind of step one, but that was a breakthrough for, for these negotiations. None of the previous agreements or deals have ever acknowledged that fossil fuels are part of the problem. So even though that language was watered down, even though that uh, acknowledgement, I mean, there was a lot of frustration about it, even that, that is an important symbolic step and that was essentially a commitment or an acknowledgement from big uh, coal producing and fossil fuel using countries such as China, India, and Russia, that there is a future world where they need to significantly scale back what they're doing. who knows exactly when, but that 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 eventually will happen. Um, and so there were people who, who took that as an optimistic sign.
0: Michael, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your perspective on COP26. And uh, uh, hope to have you back on the show. Uh, if you have anything newsworthy, I know the Washington Post covers a lot of these issues. So uh, thank you for being here.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you for having me.
0: That's Michael Bernbaum, climate solutions reporter with the Washington Post. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense. Subscribe to our podcast at GreensenseFarms.com, and listen to the Green Sense Minute Thursday and Saturdays on News Radio 105.9 WBBM Chicago.